Welcome to the Old Galway Diary podcast. Each week, Tom Kenny and I, Ronnie O'Gorman, write a column in the Galway Advertiser. Before it goes to press, we contact each other and share what is filling the page that particular week. This podcast is that conversation. And I would add, we enjoy talking to you and would appreciate if you would give us a rate and review on the Apple Podcast app. Yeah. <coughs> Tom, I met one or two people last week that actually commented on the traffic in Galway, and I don't mean to go on and on about it, but um, it's certainly becoming an issue. And uh, recently the Cabinet are going to discuss banning cars from the cities altogether, which will be a very interesting challenge for them because they'd want to have massive alternative transport in place. But... Um, what people say, and I think it myself, you know, we all want climate change looked after. We want action taken about climate change because it is a serious problem and we're serious about it. But we don't often like the, the, the various methods that are being talked about that it will have to be introduced. You know, we say, oh, yes, it, we've, we've got to do something. But, oh, I don't like that now. I don't know who could do that. So, so I think that it'll be an uphill struggle, I think, to get in a, a, an alternative uh, traffic arrangement. Well, the traffic has been an appalling problem in Galway for at least 20 years. I mean, it's not just started this year or this week. No. Uh, it's dreadful now. We have to consider that Galway is a medieval city. When they were building... Uh, this city almost a thousand years ago. Nobody thought of uh, traffic lanes or bicycle <laughs> lanes or anything like that at all. <clears throat> so it is what it is, and there is nothing you can do about the city yeah. of the city centre. Yeah. But I think to ban traffic altogether would kill off the centre. I mean, as it is, it's dying anyway, I think, uh, yeah. the city centre. Just think of all of the big names that have moved out of the city in the last, whatever, 15, 20 years. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. But that's what I'm saying, Tom. The alternative has got to be really efficient, and it still has to bring in the flow of people into the town. There's no question about that. And that's the challenge. What are they going to do? Now, there, there are places where they've done it very well, free transport and things like that, park and ride, imaginatively done. Um, you know, I, I feel... <laughs> I don't know. I, I feel our city council, yeah, I don't know. There, there, there seem a lot of negative people. We elect negative people to the councils. We should elect people with vision and articulation and are able to grasp a situation and offer various ideas. I don't know. We seem to elect people who are objecting. You know, we all say, oh, she's great now. She's always objecting to things. I'd vote for her. He's great too. He's always objecting now. He's great. I think people who object lack vision. <laughs> They're no good at all. We need people with vision. Because if they are going to ban traffic from the town, there has to be another alternative. We can't afford the town to dry, to die drip by drip, as you're saying, Tom. You know? no, no, we cannot, no. no. We don't want that to happen. Mm. Yeah. Well, well we the, the Galway that I'm writing about this week, uh, in fact, the traffic problems I'm talking about this week, really, yeah. 
relate to traffic on the river in uh, right. the 19th century. So my topic this week is the Royal Galway Yacht Club. Now, oh, I, know a lot, yes. I know a lot of people will wonder, where the hell was that? Well, it was on the corner of the canal and the Jail River. Uh, it was just up from what we know today as UCG Rowing Club. Oh, yes, I know where it is. And it was, it, I, there was a building there uh, before 1882. It was becoming useless and dangerous, apparently. And um, <clears throat> so the first initial drawing that I have is of a drawing that an architect drew up for the proposed new clubhouse for this yacht club. Uh, it was founded and received a royal warrant in 1882. Uh, it was a, a kind of a social combination, really. It was to promote sailing and rowing on the bay and on the lake as well. and yeah. uh, uh, But also to, to provide a kind of enjoyment of different amenities of the lake and the river. And they carried on for a long time in very difficult circumstances. The club premises was in a beautiful position. They had a long-term lease that only expired in 2002. Uh, and the annual rent they had was £10. Right, uh, my goodness. They had a hardcore tennis court there, so they were providing the amenities. But the clubhouse, anyway, it became a source of anxiety to the members because it was becoming dangerous. So uh, they built the new one, this new drawing that I have, uh, which was there for many years. The uh, previous one had been left in a very shaky condition, as I say, with all storms and just wear. Anyway, they, um, they decided that there was no point in trying to repair or extend, indeed, the premises, and so they built this new one. It was drawn up by a Galway architect called Ty, Mr. Tie, and yeah. uh, and it cost seventeen hundred pounds, which seems like a very <laughs> enormous amount of money indeed, yeah. in the year eighteen eighty two. Anyway, they invited subscriptions, and obviously they got it. Now, the big change that this uh, club made to the river was that yachting now became a rival sport to rowing. Uh, <clears throat> they had, for example, they had a race from the lake to the lake sorry from steamers key this was a very regular and a very popular race indeed uh, the big difficulty on the race was passing the great woods of menlo uh, because the boats became becalmed by the shelter that the woods provided <clears throat> and it was only lady luck that could get you past this the castle so it was an exciting kind of a race <clears throat> now the then secretary in 1894 was a Mr. Philip O'Gorman. Oh. Uh, and uh, he issued a notice about a regatta that was to be held on Galway Bay. There were to be yacht races, hooker races, and rowing races. Uh, the rowing were, un were under the uh, auspices of the various clubs that were in Galway at the time, the rowing clubs. That was the Carb Rowing, Commercial, and St. Patrick's Rowing Club. Now, a lot of the yachts would have sailed down the canal uh, to the Donenga stock, and the race <clears throat> in the bay was for the Riva Cup. 
which is presented by a Mr. Blake. And the course was four times around the bark at anchor, out on the roadstead, and the flag boat, which was moored off the pier. So the... uh, The Galway Vindicator, I beg your pardon, the newspaper of the day in 1896 reported that the Royal Galway Yacht Club had been, the flag had been carried in competition on English water, waters for the first time. An Irish boat called the Amulet, it was manned by amateurs from Ireland, but she secured first prizes and did so apparently on several occasions. So it was unusual, like at that time, for any uh, rowing crew to be going internationally. They had regular uh, races, yacht races, uh, for craft as well on the lake. This would be for club members only. Uh, It was a nine miles long course from the mouth of the lake to Hernies Point to Anglingham and back. Right. The club had a very attractive uh, flag in the shape of a pennant. And I have an illustration of it in the paper this week. It hung from a flagpole. It was a blue and white with the St. George's Cross and the arms of Galway. It was actually a very attractive uh, yes. design and one indeed that might be copied by other clubs uh, today. <clears throat> now, the, one of the very interesting things, and this was a relic of old decency and almost, <clears throat> excuse me, a reminder of the Raj in India. The uniform of the club was a blue coat with gilt or bronze buttons and a badge of the club stamped thereon. A a waistcoat with similar buttons, blue or white trousers and a blue cloth cap Uh with a gilt badge bearing the arms of the club. And the, uh, the uniform of the officers differed from the ordinary members in that it had stars worked on the collar. I cannot imagine any club <laughs> coming up with such a, uh, an outfit yeah, a today. Costume, a costume, yeah. yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I have kind of a superior attitude about oh, the whole thing. So, yeah. yes. uh, a lot of the, the, um, the members were from the 17th Lancers, who, of course, were uh, billeted right across the canal uh, from them in Earl's Island. Uh, yeah. Uh, you could become a member for a life payment of £25, which was an awful lot of money then. Um, and only gentlemen members could take out ladies in boats, in brackets, <laughs> who were members of the club. Right. Anyway, the club eventually went into decline, even though they had built a new clubhouse. But it was still there in uh, 1937. <clears throat> and most of the members then left and joined other rowing clubs. So it late, this building later became uh, a chemistry laboratory for UCG. I'm not quite sure what it is today, to be honest. But anyway, I have this drawing of 1882, yes, yeah. a photograph of about <laughs> 1900 and the pennant. And that is me for this week. Uh, Tom, I'm smiling like mad away here because the Royal... Galway Yacht Club. 
But I tell you this story. Uh, when the second Volvo race was, the transatlantic race was being organized and it was starting from Miami, I went over with a lot of other people, paid my way, by the way. And uh, and the mayor at that time was, was Hildegard Nocton, now an excellent public representative of the area. But uh, she was the mayor of Galway at the time. So she was there as the kind of a guest of honor of the town of Miami. And there was a lot of fuss made of the Volvo Ocean race, but <laughs> Enda O'Conine was there too. And I have a great soft spot for Enda. He's a great man. He really is a wonderful man. And he's a brave guy. There's no question. But he's also a very astute businessman. And uh, he, he owns a big Sunday newspaper now, as well as several other businesses. But <laughs> he... Had a pendant, your as as what you described from the Royal Galway Yacht Club, and he asked the Miami Yacht Club, which was apps, which was really a, a yacht club for millionaires. If you saw the yachts <laughs> that were parked outside, <laughs> they were just enormous. They weren't yachts at all; they were liners. Yeah, but, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, Enda persuaded poor Hilda that she was to put on her chain and her robes. And we were to go in and I went along as well and uh, and uh, had announced beforehand that we were the the Royal Galway Yacht Club in the West of Ireland. And we wished to present a pennant to the uh, Miami Royal Yacht Club. I've forgotten the name of it, but it was a very, very fine name. And uh, we had this absolutely excruciating time. I was a bit embarrassed by it, but Ender, of course, carried it all off. He made his speech. Poor old Hilda made an appropriate speech as well. And we got a great welcome from all these interested men. And I think they were all men, actually. And uh, we exchanged pendants. So it was really, it was just a classic moment. Because I had never heard of the Royal Galway Yacht Club before uh, until that morning. And I must say, I was highly entertained. There you are. And your grandfather yeah. was the secretary. I'm I'm really interested in that. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I, I'll talk to you again about that because that is very interesting. I'm trying to write things about my grandfather. Actually, he walked into Galway, Tom, in the 1880s. Walked into Galway from County Tipperary. Uh, very interesting that he did so. But anyway, that's another, another time. But look, you're talking about 1882. I'm actually talking about 1884. And uh, I was looking through all my notes last week to think of what to write about. And I'm writing about something I have written about before. But this is slightly a new angle because I just just tell you what I'm doing. I, that in early October 1884, a journalist from the New York Times, now we only know him by his initials, H.F., left Galway for Kong by a steamer in the company of Mr. T.P. O'Connor, who was the MP for Galway, and a Mr. Healy, who was MP for Monaghan. Now, Tom, in those days, it took five hours getting to Kong from Galway. <laughs> And I quote from the journalist, twisting in and out of the corkscrew bends of the corb and puffing queasily <laughs> until it finally reached the little wharf at the hamlet of Calm. HF stayed the night in the Carlisle Arms Hotel, which of course doesn't exist anymore, where no. he learned that Harrington was due to return from Mam Trasna the following morning. Now, Tim Harrington, MP, 
a brilliant man, was born in Kerry in 1851. He was a barrister and a journalist and an effective nationalist politician. He was absolutely loyal to Parnell and a strong supporter of the Land League, which features in this story as well. Now, he served as Lord Mayor of Dublin three times. This is Harrington. When King Edward VII visited Dublin, Harrington refused to meet him. Imagine the mayor of Dublin refusing to meet the king. But that's the way <laughs> Harrington was. He was a strong nationalist. Now, while he was in Galway jail, Harrington spent a total of two years in jail, Tom, because of his public protests, mainly on behalf of the Land League. He heard at first hand the details of the murders at Mam Trasna. And he heard about poor Miles Joyce's death and the bizarre confession of two witnesses who totally exonerated Miles on the eve of their own execution. So on his release, Harrington set out for Connemara to investigate at first hand what actually happened on August the 17, 1882, which resulted in three men hanged and seven men sentenced to penal servitude for life. Now, the New York journalist met Harrington in the foyer of the hotel. And I'll have to put in the dramatic words that they spoke. The New York Times. Well, Harrington... What did you find in Mam Trasna? Harrington says, I found enough to put Spencer, the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, in the dock for conspiracy to murder. So Harrington had tackled, Tom, the evidence of the Kapanakreha Joyce's head on. Three men from a nearby parish of Kapanakreha claimed to have identified the ten accused from behind a bush on the night in question. Harrington visited the exact spot where the Captain O'Crayers claimed to be. Neither could Harrington nor one of his witnesses identify anybody at the distance that they claimed, other than the broad outline of body shapes. The Captain O'Crayers' evidence was even more absurd, as it was based on sightings made at night when the faces of the murdered gang town were blackened. Yet their evidence sent three men to their deaths and seven others to life imprisonment. Now, the only survivor of the Mam Trasna murders was 10-year-old Patrick Joyce, who said he could not identify the attackers because it was dark and they had their faces blackened. Yet no one, no one, either on the prosecution team or on the defence, bothered to check the boy's evidence. There were many other inconsistencies which Harrington found, new witnesses which told him the truth, and probably he met the mysterious man who knew exactly who murdered who and for what reason. So anyway, during their five-hour journey by steamer back to Galway, Harrington told his findings to the journalist from the New York Times. In the journalistic style of the day, and I have the article, the journalist sets the scene of the two men talking, and I quote, within sight of the estate of, Lur of Lord Montmores, owned and on which he was shot down, within sight too of the gloomy grey mountain further north, at the base of where, where at the base of which the Huddies bailiffs were murdered, sewn in bags and cast into Loch Mask, while on the bleak side was the Joyce massacre of Mam Trasna. It was a time, Tom, of series of 
savage murders in Ireland that would shock the public and the authorities, and which in a macabre way sets the background to these murders of the Joyces at Mam Trasna. Now, the New York Times published its story on October 12, 1884, where it was widely republished, copied and enlarged upon. Harrington published the details of his findings later that year. It became a runaway bestseller. It appears even then, Tom, there was an insatiable appetite for news of the Mamtrasna murders. Yet despite, I mean, it's so mad, really, despite the overwhelming evidence that the trial was a farce, conducted in English before Irish-speaking natives, Dublin Castle refused to revisit the Mam Trasna murder case or admit that an injustice was done. So listen, here is part of the story that the New York Times published, and it's slightly more colourful than what I gave many, many years ago. So, early on Friday, Tom, August 18, 1882, John Collins, a tenant farmer, having heard disturbances during the night coming from his neighbour's house, the Joyce's, went to check as if all was well. He must have feared the worst because he brought with them two neighbours, Mary and Margaret O'Brien. They discovered an appalling sight. Even today, when our senses have been hardened by so many atrocities, it was a scene of savage murder that cried to heaven. No mercy was shown for this unfortunate Joyce family. Inside the door, Tom, which was broken off its hinges, lay the naked corpse of John Joyce, a man of mature years. He was shot twice in the body. Nearby on the bed, his wife Bridget lay dead her skull cr crushed by a blow over her right eye. Her son, Michael, 17 years, was lying beside her with two bullet wounds. He was choking and barely alive, and we would later die from his wounds. In the inner room, lying across a bed, was the elderly Margaret Joyce. She was stripped and dead from a deep wound in her forehead. Beside her was Peggy in her mid-teens, also bludgeoned to death. Lying beside her was 12 years old Patsy with two serious wounds on his head, but alive. He was very frightened. The two family dogs were upset and would not leave the house. There were bullet marks on the kitchen wall. So we, we can imagine the gasps and screams yes. of shock that this Paul. gruesome, I mean, it was absolutely <clears throat> The murder of practically the entire Joyce family in their small cabin in the heart of the Mayo Mountains on the shores of Loch Mask must have rocked the local community. And about 250 families lived there, Tom, endeavouring to make a living from the rocky soil or from rearing sheep under the shadow of Connemara's majestic Mam Trasna Mountain. Excuse me. I know. Now, later that day, the day the, the discovery was made, these families gathered on the hillside as the local RIC constable, a man called Johnson, who spoke no Irish, by the way, but a sub-constable, Lenahan, acted as an interpreter. And the local magistrate, Newton Brady, held an inquest. The two surviving boys testified that the murders had been committed by a group of three or four men, all of whom, quote, wore bonines and had their faces blackened. The shockwaves of Mam Trasna, Tom, was so severe, it was felt actually as far away as in London. And on August the 20th, the London Times commented, 
And will you hear this? No ingenuity can exaggerate the brutal ferocity of a crime that spared neither the grey hairs of an aged woman nor the innocent child of 12 years who slept beside her. This is an outburst of unredeemed and inexplicable savagery before which one stands appalled and oppressed with a painful sense of the failure of our vaunted civilization. So that's just trying to wrap it up fairly neatly. It was a murder that reverberated across the two great islands. And um, I'll talk a bit more about it again next week because you know it, it came within a series of murders and uh, yeah, and did. also at the birth of the land league as well and the land league was accused of a lot of murders which it had nothing to do with but it just happened there was a series of terrible murders and next week we have to talk about the phoenix park murders which caused absolute hysteria they did yeah uh in the in the late 70s Ronnie. <coughs> uh there was a Mrs. Linsky from Bridge Street. She was 100 years old, which was very rare, actually, in those times. And I got permission from the family, and myself and Jimmy Welsh went down. Uh, Jimmy took a photograph of her, and I interviewed her. And that was my column for the following week. And one of the questions I asked this lady was, uh, what was your earliest memory? <laughs> And she said, kneeling on the Salmonweir Bridge, <clears throat> the lot of clad women praying. And I was kneeling on Salmonweir Bridge. How did you know there were clad women? I said, I can still see in my mind's eye the triangles of shawl as these ladies knelt on the bridge. That's a kind of a vision that has disturbed me yeah. ever since, really. Yeah. And I said, and what were you praying for? Oh, oh, there was some, oh, they were going to kill some, they were going to hang uh, some fellas. I think Joyce was one of them the next morning, and that's what we were praying for. Yeah. And I thought, she can't be talking about Mam Trasna, but she was. Yeah. She was yeah. about four years old at the time. Yeah. Uh, but that vision of triangles of shawl kneeling on the bridge yeah. uh, is deeply kind of uh, yeah. <clears throat> ingrained in my brain ever since. You, you know, see, they were all facing the jail. They were, they were yeah, exactly. kneeling down facing the jail on the other end of the bridge. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. Anyway, I could not believe that I was talking to somebody yeah. who was there at the time. I know. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Yeah, yeah. Extraordinary story. It, it, the story gets more macabre. and, and It does, it, it does. It, it was it, the greatest miscarriage of so-called uh, English uh, justice uh, ever. Yeah. But, but Tom, what I hope to show is that it came within a series of murders. Murders yeah. committed against landlords and their agents. Landlords were shot down dead. Their agents were shot as well. There was the land league. There was huge disturbance in the country. And, you know, it, it came within that that sort of succession of murders. Yeah, and it, it was an awful time in Ireland. It was an awful time. Um, 
poor old rural Ireland was beginning to stand up for itself. I'm not condoning the murders, but no, no, suddenly no. they were finding a voice and the voice they found <laughs> was Charles Stuart Parnell and the Great Land League. But I'll, exactly. we'll talk about that next week, if I may. Yes, okay. Come back to it because it's it's a great story. It's it's a great movie to, waiting to be made, actually. <laughs> you know, yes, it, well, it would be a horror movie. I know, probably. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, Tom, will we okay. leave it there? Until next week, Ronnie. You betcha, Tom. Take care. Yeah.